are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Advent to you. It is really, really good to be home. I I was thinking this morning that home is the place where people know you the best and the most, but they love you anyway. And that's how I feel every time I'm here at BFC. This is our home church, but it's not just our church. This is our home family. And it's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you to Pastor Rick for the invitation. So glad that uh, Pastor gets a chance to be with his family. That's, those are rare opportunities. And, and when I found out I could help him spend an extra couple of nights with his kids, it was a no-brainer that I would come and, and be here today. So uh, take your Bibles with me, if you would, please. It's so good not to have to introduce myself at a place. Usually I spend five minutes introducing myself, but good to be at a place where everybody kind of knows you. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And I'd invite you to stand with me, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it. In those days, the preacher would sit and the people would stand. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? All the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. And the birds came and they ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now let's drop down to verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we all say together, thanks be to God. Father, thank you for uh, this moment. We pray now that you would help us to hear this word as you intended it to be heard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Why is this parable from Jesus so important? And why are we reading this on the first Sunday of Advent? 
The parable is important for a couple of reasons. The first thing I'd point out to you that this is one of only three parables that Jesus told that are mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of all the parables they could have chosen to use, they chose to repeat this one. And so it tells me that in the life of the early church, this was a very important parable that they said we want it to be repeated again and again. The other reason why it's important, though, is because Jesus explained it. Did you notice that? That Jesus told us what this parable means. And that's something Jesus never does in any other parable. And the reason Jesus normally doesn't tell us what the parables mean is that parables are different than any other kind of discourse. Parables are intended to, to mess with you. Parables are intended to dislodge you from one way of thinking to another way of thinking. And so they're, they're kind of sneaky. Parables kind of undermine and, and they work on you. Sometimes they work on you for a couple of hours, sometimes a couple of days, sometimes even a couple of weeks, when all of a sudden the meaning of the parable, like a ticking time bomb, just tick, 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 and all of a sudden it explodes and it shatters an old way of thinking and it gives us a new way of understanding. That was the power of these parables. Some people even said that the reason Jesus was crucified was because the religious leaders finally had the bomb go off and they realized what Jesus was actually saying about the kingdom of God, what he was actually saying about grace, and, and other things that Jesus wanted to get uh, deep into our being. And so for Jesus to actually come along and instead of let it be subversive, to explain the parable in detail, that tells me that this was a kingdom parable that Jesus said, I do not want them to misunderstand this. This one has to be understood. And for that reason, it's become one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told. Some people have called it the parable of the sower. Other people have called it the, the parable of the soils. And I think both of those are appropriate titles for this, but... I'm not going to call it either one of those. I'm going to call it the parable of the crazy farmer. Because this farmer does things that you've never seen a farmer do before. And there's three things I want you to pick up from this text. First is I want you to pick up the indiscriminate extravagance. I want you to pick up the audacious confidence. And then I want you to pick up on the persistent patience of this crazy farmer. So let's think first of all about what is the, in, the indiscriminate extravagance. What does indiscriminate mean? Indiscriminate means not careful. It means it's not selective. It, it, it means that, that there wasn't carefulness by this farmer. Now one of the things I want to point out to you is that when you think about these different ground conditions, these soil conditions, they also symbolize, according to Jesus, the condition of people's hearts. Notice here uh, some of the soil conditions he mentions. First of all, he says that some people have, their, their hearts are like the pathway ground. That means their hearts are hard. And we don't know why their hearts are hard. Maybe they've been walked on. Sometimes if your heart is hard, it's because you've been taken advantage of. Or maybe things haven't turned out the way you hoped that they would. And so you, you kind of, you have a hard heart because you're trying to protect yourself from being hurt again. And Jesus said sometimes people have pathway hearts. And so what happens is when the seed of the gospel is sown into their heart and into their life, because the ground is so hard, it can't penetrate the soil so it can take root, and the birds come and snatch up the seed before it can 
penetrate the ground. And he said the birds represent the thoughts of the enemy, the thoughts of the devil that come and take away hope before it has a chance to take root. Sometimes people's hearts are hard. The second part of the ground, though, that Jesus described is the rocky ground. And this is the ground that, that is shallow. It represents the shallow heart. When, when ground is rocky, it means that it has a really thin layer of soil on the top. And so when you throw a seed on it, it comes up really, really quickly because it's near the surface. But the problem is when the sun comes out, it burns up that, that plant before it has a chance to take root and go really, really deep into the ground where it can get its water. And he said, sometimes people have, Jesus said, really shallow hearts. And they seem like they really respond quickly to the gospel. And all of a sudden, though, as soon as pressure comes, as soon as the sun comes out, they just kind of fade away. Jesus said, sometimes people have rocky hearts. Now look at the next heart. Jesus said, sometimes people's hearts are like weedy ground. And the weeds represent for Jesus the worries of this life and the pressure of economics, the, the pressure of materialism. People get so wrapped up in this world and so wrapped up in anxiety and pressure. I mean, just think about all of the pressure you have in this season of the year to try to make ends meet. And he said sometimes those worries of life are like weeds, that the seed is trying to get into their heart, but the weeds choke out the life that's in them. And they, it's just like every time they start to make progress, they, it's like something's around their neck and they can't quite have the word established in their, in their lives. Some people, maybe even here, are weedy ground. But Jesus also said that there's such a thing as a fruitful heart, that this is the good ground. This is the productive heart where the gospel seed gets sown into their life and and they receive it with great joy and it takes root. And not only does it change their lives, but their lives become productive and they start multiplying their faith and, and they start beginning to share the good news as well. And Jesus said in every group of people, all of these ground conditions exist because they represent our hearts. Now, before we talk about exactly what that means, let me tell you what happens in first century farming. Today, when we, when we plant a field, our farmers, they cut rows and furrows in the ground, and they're pretty symmetrical. And then we go through and we just kind of plant seeds one by one and one by one. And, and when the plants grow up, there's, there's just a perfect symmetry of all of the plants. That's not how they did farming in the first century. What they would do is they would take a plot of ground that they thought might be fruitful and then they would take their plow and they would break up that good ground and it would get all ready to receive the, the seed. But then when they would plant the seed, they would, they would reach into the bag that they had on their, on their shoulder and they would grab a handful of seed and that seed was precious commodity. It was very valuable to them. And so they would take it and they would throw it only on the ground that had already been broken up and prepared. And then what they would do is they would come back again with the plow and they would cut in the seed that was already on the good ground and drive it really, really deep. And that's how they would have a productive crop. But the reason I say that this farmer is so crazy is this is not how he planted his field. Now, no doubt he had good ground in front of him that he'd already plowed up, and he's reaching and he's taking that precious seed, but, but he throws it on the good ground. But did you notice he's, he's not that particular where the seed goes? He's, he's, he's reaching in and he says, oh, wait a minute, there's some rocky soil over there. There's a big pile of rocks. I'm going to throw some seed over there. 
And look over there, there's, there's a bunch of weeds. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some seed over there in the weeds. And then over here, there's, there's a hard path. And the ground is really, really hard. And, but he, it doesn't seem to matter to him. He, he throws the seed over on the path. Now he's throwing down the good soil, but he doesn't seem to be that concerned about the condition of the soil. And the reason I think he's kind of crazy is this indiscriminate extravagance. He was being wasteful with the seed. He was being reckless. That's the, that's the first thing people would hear when they heard the story about the crazy farmer. Why is he wasting seed on all that extra ground that really isn't ready to receive the seed? It's just going to go to waste. But not only do I want you to see his, his incredible extravagance and even recklessness, but I also want you to see this point. I want you to see his audacious confidence. Because if you don't believe in the power of what you're doing, you're not going to take precious seed and precious commodity and just throw it everywhere. But here's the point that I really came to and I realized what was going on here. And the reason this farmer was so crazy is he thought about farming in a way that nobody else ever had. Most of the time when we think about sowing gospel seed in people's lives, we're thinking about the condition of their heart. We want to spend our time with the people whose hearts are really receptive to the gospel. Because we only have so much time, we only have so much energy, and so I, I'm not going to really spend a lot of time with somebody who has a hard heart. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with people who's all full of anxiety and their, their lives are full of weeds or people who are really, really shallow people. I, because my concern is with the condition of the ground. But the reason this crazy farmer can have audacious confidence is, take a look at this. The farmer's confidence is not in the potential of the soil. It's in the power of the seed. He has more confidence in the power of the gospel than he does in the condition of people's hearts. And that's the reason why he can throw seed on good soil and, and know that it's going to be productive. But just because it's rocky doesn't mean he's not going to cast that seed there. Because he knows that the power is not in the potential of the ground. It's not in how ready people are to receive and, and hear the gospel. But the, the power is fully in the seed. People's hearts are going to vary. Your hearts are going to vary. Some of your hearts are hard. Some of your hearts are rocky. Some of your hearts are shallow. But there's still extravagant gospel seed being cast out because the issue is not the potential of your heart. The issue is the power of the gospel. And that's what this farmer, that's the reason he did something no farmer was willing to do before. He was indiscriminately extravagant, but he was also audaciously confident because his confidence was in the seed, not in the ground. I want you to take a look at this picture. This is a picture of a church of the... Well, yeah, I'll come over here where you guys can see it. This is a picture of the Cordoba, Argentina, Church of the Nazarene. Now, Cordoba is, is the most secular city in all of Argentina. And Argentina is a very secular country. It's, it's a first world country, first world economically. It's very secular, maybe more secular than the U.S., but Cordoba is the most secular city they have because it's the seat of their education. All of their educational institutions, their universities are all in Cordoba. And so in this city of millions of people, there's only three churches. There's a Catholic church, there's a Mormon church, and now there's a church of the Nazarene. It, it's been said that, there, that this population might be 20 to 25% as being either atheistic or agnostic. Let me interpret that for you. 
this is a hard ground place. This is really hard ground. We were looking for a place to plant a church, and we found these church planters. Take a look at this picture. This is Junior and J.C. Rodriguez. This is a picture of their ordination when I was with them last January. They're incredible church planters. They're Nazarene missionaries who left Brazil, where they knew Portuguese. They learned Spanish, so they went to Argentina. They planted five Nazarene churches, all very successful, almost always in a city. And when they were trying to decide where to plant this church, you can imagine in a city of millions of people, you've got a lot of territory you could go to. They found this one area that they thought was the, the, most, the greatest potential, but it was really expensive. It was expensive until they, they realized that there was this one storefront that, that was way below market value. Everything else was sky high, but this one storefront for sale was, was thousands and thousands of dollars less. And then they found out why. This building where this church of the Nazarene now uh, used to be an illegal abortion clinic. And thousands of babies were killed over the course of 20 years in that abortion clinic. And, and when the owner of that clinic died, she died in that house, and they didn't find her body for six months. And so everybody said, this place is haunted. This, pla this, this place is foreboding. And so nobody wanted to touch that place except the Church of the Nazarene. The Church of the Nazarene said, we'll take that place. We're going to take this place of darkness. We're going to turn it into a place of light. We're going to take this place of death. We're going to turn it into a place of life. And that's what we did. We bought the property. So now Junior and JC live on the second floor of that house, and then the, the first floor is the church. And today, if you can imagine, that church runs over 100 people. That's like saying 10,000 people in Bethany, Oklahoma. So God's blessing them. But here's the incredible part of that story, in that the little courtyard behind Junior and J.C.'s house, there is one tree. It's a peach tree. And for 20 years of that peach tree's existence, it had never produced a single peach. It was a completely barren tree, no fruit, until Junior and J.C. moved in. And all of a sudden, almost... A transformation happened, and now suddenly it wouldn't stop making peaches. Peaches just grew everywhere. They started falling to the ground. They couldn't eat all of the peaches. And not only was it falling all over their yard, but it was falling over into their neighbor's yard as well. And one day, Junior and J.C. got a knock on their door, and it was their next-door neighbor. And J.C. answered the door, and she said, Listen, I think I know why you're here. You're here because of those peaches. And I'm so sorry. She said, We'll come over. We'll pick up all of those peaches out and clean that up for you. And the lady said, no, it, it is about the peaches, but it's not because I'm upset. I just have a question for you. I've lived in this house next door for 20 years, and I know for a fact that that tree has not produced a single peach in all of those 20 years until you moved in. And all of a sudden, it won't stop making peaches. And I just want to know, what spell did you put on that tree? Because I've got some trees in my yard, and I, I need to put a spell on my trees. And J.C. laughed and she said, oh no, I, it, there's no spell. But let me tell you what I think is happening here. And she began to build this relationship with her, this atheistic woman. And over the course of several weeks and even months, this woman put her faith in Christ. And now she is a member of the Cordoba Church of the Nazarene. She's one of ours now. And I got to thinking about this, this audacious confidence that that. Our faith is not in the heart conditions of people, and our faith is not even in our own heart condition. 
Your heart condition can be changed. That's not the point. It's not in the potential of your heart. It's in the power of the seed that goes into your heart that can change anything. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, all things are possible. So this crazy farmer not only had this indiscriminate extravagance, but he also had this audacious confidence, not in the potential of the heart, but in the power of the gospel. Are you with me? Now there's one more thing I want you to see here. I want you to see also the persistent patience of this farmer. Patience. I read a really important book this past year that was important for me and it was called the patient ferment of the early church and the reason what really struck me about this book's point is that as as this author was studying the life of the early church for the first 300 years the church had no scripture except the old testament didn't have a new testament the canon hadn't been put together he didn't have the bibles the way we have it now they, they hadn't even gone through the councils where they were established doctrine and decided this is orthodox and this is not orthodox And so for the first 300 years of the church, the bishops of the church had to write treatises to help the church know what to do. And these treatises were written by Cyprian and Origen and and, and others like that. And then they would pass it around to the churches both east and west. And that would begin to form a way of understanding this is how we do church in the world. But what this writer said is that for 300 years, of all the treatises that they wrote in the early church, those early church fathers and mothers, they didn't write one treatise on evangelism. It was just like they just knew organically the church was going to be reproductive and fruitful, and and nobody had to, you didn't have to be taught to do evangelism. You just became a witness because God had changed your life. He said not only that, but they never wrote a treatise on church structure. They never wrote a treatise on discipleship. They, they never wrote a treatise on worship. Those were just things that were naturally springing out of the church. But he said they wrote four treatises that we know of on patience. And the reason he said they wrote treatises on patience is because here was this little tiny baby church in the midst of this vast Roman empire, maybe one of the most secular and you know, ungodly places, empires the world has ever known. And here they were, they're wondering, is God really going to move? Is God, is God really going to change this situation? Because you and I both, just like they, they we grow impatient. We grow impatient with God's timing. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered, why doesn't God act more quickly? That, that if God would just do what I think he should do, this whole thing could go away. This, this relationship could be fixed. This marriage could be healed. This body could be taken care of. Why isn't God acting quicker? And so they wrote four treatises on patience. And this is, is, this is basically what they said. We have to trust in the slow but certain work of God. That God's timing and our timing are on vastly different scales. And what if, what if the fact that we thought God wasn't moving, that God was really working in a way, he just wasn't working on our timetable. And maybe if we, if we didn't try to manipulate and control God's ways, maybe God was going to get it all worked out in the end. Better than we could have. Maybe, maybe our timing's the one that's all off. But here's what I've noticed in my life. Whenever I have grown impatient with the slow work of God, and I try to kind of take control, and I try to help God get accomplished what I think God should do, 
And whenever we try to control or manipulate or hurry the slow but certain work of God, we can do great damage. We can do damage to the kingdom. We can do damage to other people. And we can even, even do damage to ourselves. And if you don't believe me, think about church history for a minute. Think about the moments in church history where the church said, God isn't moving quickly enough. I'm gonna, I, need to, I need to go ahead and work for God and change for God. Think about Constantine. Think about Christendom. Think about the Crusades. Think about the Conquistadors. Those are the four C's that we don't want to have in church history. But every single one of those moments are moments when the people of God said, God isn't working fast enough for my liking. We need to try and be, do for God what God isn't doing. And whenever we do that, we are taking God's name in vain. You ever wonder about that commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain? How many of you know that's not about cussing? You think God would give an entire commandment out of ten to say, don't say a swear word. What it means to take God's name in vain isn't about cussing, although I don't recommend cussing. What it really means is we misrepresent God in the world. We misrepresent his name. We try to act like God's people and do things for God that we think God should do. But when we do, we can mess it all up because we're, we're taking his name in vain. We're misrepresenting his character and his nature and his time. And that can be dangerous. Patience. Persistently patient. That's what this farmer did. He could throw seed on all of those different ground conditions because he knew that in the end, God's timing was going to be perfect in those people's lives. He didn't have to go over there and start kind of digging rocks out. He didn't go over there and have to, he didn't try to start pulling weeds. He just knew he could be extravagant because he had audacious confidence, not in the potential of the ground, but in the power of the seed and the persistent patience that knew that God's work would be done in God's way, in God's time, and that we could trust that. Let me tell you two quick stories before we close. Take a look at this. I want you to meet Will Bromley. Will Bromley was a missionary to the Jimmy Valley in Papua New Guinea in 1960. That was before I was even born. Bromley went into the Jimmy Valley in Papua New Guinea in a family station wagon. Now, the reason you need to... Let me explain to you what, what this 42-mile trip is from the Nazarene Hospital down into the Jimmy Valley. It's 42 miles that takes, on a good day, five to six hours to get to the bottom. The roads are so treacherous, so dangerous. When it's raining, it could take you eight or nine hours. When I went down into the Jimmy Valley a couple of years ago, it took us five and a half hours on a good day. The potholes on this road are so gigantic that cars disappear. Literally, they, they disappear. We had three African Jeeps. If we had taken my, my Ford Explorer, it would have been gone in three months on these roads. So you take these really heavy-duty Jeeps, and on top of the Jeeps, they put these wooden planks, these, these kind of pieces of lumber. I said, what's the lumber for? They said, that's if the bridges go out and we have to cross over the rivers. And I'm starting to pray, Lord, please don't let the, the bridges go out. I had to hang on like this the entire time. I was shaking for five or six hours, jumping all around. I got to the bottom of the Jimmy Valley, and I looked at my Fitbit. It said 30,000 steps. Good job. It's the best workout I'd had in my life just getting to the bottom of the Jimmy Valley. That's the place that Bromley went with his wife and young son in a family station wagon in 1960. 
and it was hard ground. They, they had never heard the gospel in that place. Very superstitious, very tribal. For seven years, I want you to think about that. For seven years, they, they didn't have one convert. They had no response. But they kept throwing seed. They kept throwing seed. They were audaciously confident. They said the condition of the ground isn't the point. They just kept throwing seed. And one day something happened. And someone put their faith in Christ. And then another person put their faith in Christ. Before we know it, dozens were putting their faith in Christ. And then after a few months, all of a sudden hundreds of people start putting their faith in Christ. And, and this, this great move of God down in the Jimmy Valley where they've been throwing seed for so long. Now this is the way I heard the story. Bromley was coming out of the missionary house that he built. I've been in that house. I've slept in that house. It's so primitive, I slept with my clothes on for fear of what was going to come out of the walls. Bromley built that. He lived there with his, with his little child. He came out. He slipped off the front porch and broke his leg. They didn't know what to do for him. The, the, the Papua New Guineans, they, they literally carried him back up to the missionary hospital, the 42 miles. And by the time he got to the top, he had died. The missionaries at the hospital, they built a casket for him and they had a service for him. And then they took his body back down into the Jimmy Valley and they buried him there. I've been to his graveside. It's a memorial now. His wife came back with their young son. He was only four or five years old at the time. She continued to do the work. And today, the only district in the Church of the Nazarene that I'm aware of that's not named for geography, it's called the Bromley District. Church of the Nazarene. It's one of the largest and fastest growing districts with thousands and thousands of people in the world. I want to tell you something. The ground for Bromley was really hard. But he was persistently patient in the slow but certain work of God. Okay, so last story. It was a first Sunday of the new year. I was here pastoring Bethany First Church. The Lord woke me up at like 4 o'clock in the morning and did something that maybe happened three or four times in my whole pastoral ministry. And that was I felt the Lord say, I want you to preach something different this morning. Now I plan my sermons way in advance. And so for him to do that three hours before the Sunday morning service was a little uncomfortable for me. But I, you know, I, I wanted to obey the Lord, so I just kind of scratched something down on a napkin or something. I came to the pulpit, was trying to be obedient, say what I needed to say. And the Lord helped. It was a good service. The presence of the Lord was there, and, and it was fine. The next morning, my wife is, gets a phone call. She's, she's the office manager for the Nazarene District office right over here in the corner, the Oklahoma District. And she gets a call from a lady who says, I'm looking for a Nazarene church. And Christy's talking to her, and she said, Now, before you tell me where I should go, let me just say this. I went to Bethany First Church yesterday morning, and she said it was awful. The preacher was so self-centered. All he did was talk about himself. He didn't even preach from the Bible, is what she said. She had no idea she was talking to my wife. He wasn't preaching holiness. And then she, then she said this. She said, I can just tell you this. It's not like it was when Mel McCullough was the pastor of Bethany First Church. And Christy's just laughing, and... And she's saying, well, I, I don't think you should go back to Bethany first. She's trying to send her to another church. And the lady said this before she hung up the phone. She said, you know, as bad as it was, I don't want you to feel bad for me because I went home, I watched Joel Osteen, and everything was good. So she, she was good. You can't compete with Joel Osteen. 
She told me that story. It was fine. We just laughed about it. That's kind of called pastoring. Five years go by. Five years. I'm no longer the pastor of Bethany First Church. I'm no longer the president at NTS. Now I'm a general superintendent, and I'm at the South Texas District Assembly preaching a district assembly service. And a long line of people wait to see me after the service, and I notice that at the end of the line, there's a young woman probably in her mid-30s, and she's crying. She's waiting to talk to me. And when she comes forward, she reaches into her Bible, her hands are shaking and tears are coming down her face, and she just hands me a note like this, and it has some scratching on it, some scribbles on it. And she said, do you know what this is? I said, no, I don't. She said, five years ago, I came to a service on the first Sunday of the new year at Bethany First Church. And she said, I was so desperate when I came in that Sunday morning, I was almost ready to kill myself. But God spoke to me through your message that morning and gave me hope. And it changed my life. And she said, I have been taking this, these notes every day for the past five years. And I've been reading them as part of my morning devotions to remind me that God is with me. And I wanted to say thank you. And I thought to myself, that's what being part of the kingdom's like. Same service, same sermon. One lady hated it. Couldn't wait to get out of the room. The other lady had changed her life. That's called being a pastor, by the way. But you know what that is? That's, that's kingdom economics. That's the way the kingdom works. That sometimes the ground is hard, but you don't just trust that, that nothing's happening because you can't see that nothing's happening. And I'm thinking about some of you. We're in this first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is the season of indiscriminate extravagance. And it is the season of audacious confidence. But do not forget, it's also the season of persistent patience that God will have God's way, maybe not in our time, but God's work will be done and He can be trusted. Some of you have been waiting for a spouse that hasn't come. Some of you have been praying for a, a child that's far from God and you don't see anything happening. Some of you have been praying for a job. Some of you have been praying for the healing of a sickness and it seems like God's timing and your timing aren't working together. I just want to say to you on this first Sunday of Advent, you can trust Him. God's way is best and God's way will work out and we don't take control of it. We keep being extravagant we keep being confident but we also keep trusting this morning we're going to come to the table of the lord i'm going to invite those who are going to help us serve if they would to come and i'd invite you to stand to prepare to receive this lord's supper you say who is who is welcome to receive communion do I have to be a member of this church? The answer is no. You have to be open to the work of God in your life. You just have to say, I, I want more of God's grace in my life today. This can be even a moment where you put your faith in Christ, where you trust His Word is true. And so as we prepare by listening to this and joining into this worship song to receive it, open up your hearts to the grace of God.
that is here today. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.